Well, hello, everyone. This is J.B. Hickson with NBW Ministries, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message, and uh, coming to you from my studio beneath the sky, tucked away under the tall timbers of Colorado. It is a Friday, January the 26th, 2024, and so excited to have a returning guest, everybody's favorite, Dr. Brad Mastin, is with us. He has not been here for two months and it's been way, way, way too long. So uh, he always just uh, blesses my heart and uh, is such a blessing to hear him talk about the Word of God and uh, so like-minded on so many areas. Today, when he comes on, we're going to be talking about Christians and the things of this world. And boy, if there was ever a time that we need to be conscious of worldliness and all that that entails and hedge ourselves uh, through the power of the Spirit against uh, being caught up in the world's ways. It's a day, it's a time like this. And so I'll introduce uh, Brad here in just a moment, but uh, just uh, wrapping up a great week. You know, I, I'm just so like a kid in a candy shop getting to do what we do. You know, we we write, we speak, I get to preach and teach at Plum Creek Chapel. Uh, I get to travel and speak across the country at conferences. But above all, my favorite thing is the daily dialogues that I get to have with uh, some pretty outstanding Bible teachers and and experts in their field, and this was one of those powerhouse weeks. You know, we you know we, we we tend to always have great weeks in terms of our guests, but it seems like the last two weeks have just been packed. You know, last week we had Alex Newman, Pete Garcia, Dr. Randall Price, and uh, you know, just a Shane, my my technologist Shane, and World Events Update with Randy. This week, as we wrap up, I'm looking back and I'm thinking, wow, Monday we got to talk to Dr. Andy Woods about the pre-wrath rapture. We, and, and, and refuting that view, Tuesday, we got to talk to Mondo Gonzalez about the mystery of the Ten Kings from Daniel 7 and Revelation 17. Uh, Wednesday, we had World Events Update, as usual, with Randy, another awesome, you know, just commentary and insights on all that's going on in this world. Yesterday, we had another uh, just great Bible scholar and godly man and friend, Lucas Doremus, who's been on the show many times, talking to us about the uh, crazy world of quantum computing and the enticing illusion of quantum computing. And then we save the best for last with uh, Brad Mastin today, Dr. Brad Mastin. So I uh, want to remind you to just... Uh, Check out our website. Lots of free materials there. I just posted a couple of new end times charts on our the free section of our Not By Works online store. All of that stuff's free. You just, you know, uh, put it in your cart and check out. No credit card needed. It automatically emails you. And if you want everything on our free site, there's an option for all free items. You just put that in your cart and you'll get an email with, I don't know, 30 or 40 PDFs attached and you can just uh, save them to your hard drive and go through them at your leisure. But we try to add to that pretty regularly. So check out the free section at the online store. While you're there, you can check out my latest three books, Spirit of the Antichrist, Volumes 1 and 2, and Spirit of the False Prophet, Rise of the Global Technocracy. That's the most recent one that came out last September. Still getting a lot of great traction and feedback from that. I'll be speaking on the subjects from that book of AI and uh, technocracy and uh, transhumanism and all of the global elites and what they're doing to use technology to pave the way for the Antichrist and False Prophet. That's what I'll be speaking mostly at 
uh, on at our upcoming conferences. So we head out next week. We'll be down in uh, Louisiana. Then we come back for a couple of weeks at Plum Creek Chapel. Then we hit the road uh, to go down to the southeast, uh, be speaking in Atlanta, and then at the Orlando Prophecy Summit, and then at another church down in Florida. So you can learn all about that at our events page on the website. We do covet your prayers as we travel, um, and uh, pray that the Word of God goes forth and that we have safe travels and that kind of thing. So uh, with that, let me get our verse for the day out here, which I think is a good one for what we're going to be talking about with our friend Brad. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul, of course, writing on his third missionary journey. It's uh, roughly the winter of 56, maybe 57 AD, December into January, February, sometime like that. And uh, is this great, uh, almost, you might say, his magnum opus from a human perspective, a great doctrinal treatise of the book of Romans. And, uh, and he says this in chapter 12, that section at the end of Romans, where he's giving some practical advice to believers on how to live daily for Christ. And he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And listen to this part. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Well, Brad, we're going to be talking today about worldliness. And uh, I started to say, you know, when it comes to the subject of worldliness, worldliness, there's nobody better to talk about it than you. But that kind of sounds, <laughs> that sounds a little suspicious. What I mean is the dangers of worldliness and biblical teaching about worldliness. That's what why you come to my mind, because you're such a great Bible expositor. Welcome to the program, my friend. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been too long and I missed, missed talking to you. Likewise, we'll have to make sure we, we're back on at least a, a monthly uh, uh, cycle here, either every month or every other month. We're, we've got so many great guests, it's hard to, hard to pick them, you know? It really, really is. So, oh, And it's so edifying to watch and hear and see all these godly men that the Lord's brought you in into touch with it's it's a real gift to the body of christ so thank you well, for what you do you are a blessing and uh you know you're definitely one of my favorites but uh uh if you find out that i say that to all my guests just pay no attention <laughs> just ignore it's it. really right. you it's re you're really the one all right <laughs> i believe so, you <laughs> so brad is the pastor uh the, the teaching pastor at fort collins bible church um been there a while. We've uh, had the chance to speak at that church many times and really love love the folks there. Tell them hello for me. Um, he's also recently, uh, he, his Fort Collins Bible College merged with uh, Colorado Biblical University uh, recently, and Brad has taken on the role of executive vice president there at CBU. A great group of people, uh, Dr. Chris Cohn and others, I think, are involved with that. Steve Sperlin, I believe, has a role to play there. And I can't believe that they pulled off the coup to get Dr. Brad Maston to be a part of that powerhouse team. You're gonna, you're building a dynasty there. You'll probably never lose the championship after after <laughs> you. So. Uh, FortCollinsBibleChurch.com and ColoradoBiblicalUniversity.com. Uh, highly recommend uh, both. Great place to further your education and learn, study the Word of God deeper, and a great church if you're in northern Colorado to fellowship with like-minded folks. Brad, uh, welcome to the program. Well, again, thanks for having me on, JB. It's a real joy. A real joy. All right, so I'm just going to kind of 
throw it to you as always. Uh, you do such a great job of kind of walking through the material, but we're talking about uh, how Christians are not supposed to love the world. So um, tell us what that's all about. It's a it's an interesting topic to me because I find that it's one that is uh, oftentimes confused, right? When we take a verse like First John two fifteen through seventeen, which we'll get to look at and kind of dissect uh, together. Which again, I just such a joy to do Bible study live with with one of my heroes here, you JB. So thank you for that. But um, worldliness is is an interesting thing to define because at different points in church history, worldliness was drinking coffee or going bowling, right? Or worldliness was defined as uh, possibly in any way enjoying the good things that God has given us to do. And so we've come hopefully to a more mature view and perspective on that. Um, but when we talk about what it means to be worldly, we might use the word to say if someone's worldly uh, outside of the Christian context, we, they might think of someone who's really cosmopolitan or you know knows what everyone thinks and thinks what everyone thinks, right? Is in the flow of, of the kind of the popular intelligentsia or whatever it is of the day or literati or however, uh, but lives according to the wisdom of man, right? Someone who's 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 built up that way. But additionally, we, in a Christian sense, can think of a person as worldly who lives only for the pleasures of the world, right? Someone who is existing with that, uh, satisfying the lust of the flesh in everything that they can do. Everything, their whole world is just how much pleasure can I squeeze out of these days? And we see that coming forth very natural from naturally from the atheistic, materialistic, or postmodern worldviews, because once you can't know anything, and certainly you can't know the transcendent God because you don't believe in him, then there's really nothing left but to measure life in terms of how much pleasure you can gain from it, right? But we can also see that happen, and sadly, in the life of a believer, right? Believers can also, uh, you know, lose their focus on Christ and decide to live exclusively for pleasures as well. Um, but I would put forth a, a picture, an early picture of, of worldliness as someone whose faith and hope rests in the ungodly world system. Mm. And uh, that may be, uh, may be a little bit too simple, but what I think it does is it points out that once we love that world system, we're going to take all of our facts from the world system. And that's what I see happening with believers today. So many believers today is that they're so in love with the, uh, the, the structures of fame or wealth or power. They're so in love with you know, what they can gain from this or that, that they can't even cast a suspicious eye upon it, whether those are you know, govern human governmental systems or uh, systems of education education, academia, learning, or any other kind of uh, good works or good hope uh, type thing that is presented to them. And uh, I think that that is more at the core of what uh, John has to say and what we're being warned against in John's epistle. But I would love to hear uh, what your kind of first blush impressions are of a worldly person or the worldly loss. I, I love your definition, a, a person whose faith and hope rests in the world system. And I don't think we, did we read First John 2? Did we? We didn't yet, no. Yeah. So, you know, do not love the world or the things of the world. That's, I'll let you talk about it later, but that's kind of the premise here. Um, but, you know, from a, I love how you point out that even Christians can be swept up in the tide of worldliness and frankly, not even know it. You know, the Bible talks about self-deception, which is the worst kind of deception, uh, not realizing that you have adopted a worldview that is distinctly worldly. That's the way the Bible uses that term. Uh, but you're right, in, in a in a you know common parlance, people might you think of worldly as someone who's well traveled, someone who's, you know, educated and so forth but that's not what we mean when we talk about it in a in a spiritual sense there is a clear distinction 
and we see it again and again, you're going to probably get to some of these verses as you expound on it, between thinking with a spiritual mindset of heavenly things mm -hmm. and or as as we read in, in Romans 12, being transformed rather than conformed versus the opposite, being conformed and you know, thinking like the world and acting like the world, but uh, it's important, and I hope you'll you'll dive into this in more detail as we go forward here. It's important to realize that worldliness is not just simply a list of behaviors. You know, mm. like you said, playing cards or dancing or going to the movies or going to a uh, you know a, a pool house and playing pool and that kind of stuff. Uh, that was the old school kind of legalistic way of thinking about it in the middle of the. 20th century, the fundamentalist, modernist controversies. And I think people, even though they might have been well-intentioned, they got their eyes off of the root cause here and made it mm -hmm. about things. And the fact of the matter is, someone can avoid all of those things, right? right. They, can, they can avoid, uh, you know, billiards and uh, bowling and playing cards and dancing and going to the movies and yet still be worldly. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, the the illustration that I really enjoy for those who saw it's, it's funny getting old because, you know, the, the references they use, the cultural references become less and less effective because most people haven't seen The Matrix. But there was a movie called The Matrix, which was a science fiction film about a, a fellow who uh, who discovers that the real world around him isn't real. And he's uh, pulled out of that into the real world. It's like a computer simulation and the computers, the AIs had taken over as spooky as that is right and uh plugged humans into basically pods where they lived exclusively within their imagination they pull him out and he's faced with the 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 reality of what's going on in the real physical world and then at one point he goes back in you know we have several points but he goes back into the matrix or that simulation and he's looking out and he goes oh i used to eat lunch there you know great noodles and it was hilarious it's hilarious it's a funny <laughs> moment because he's realizing that he never ate lunch there and that the noodles aren't great, right? But in fact, there's no noodles. It's all an illusion. And I feel like that's a, a good uh, comparison point for most Christians. When they first place their faith in Christ, they have no idea the uh, the fantasy world that surrounds them. And by that, I mean the, the satanic world system that's around them. And they think that life's pretty good and the education system's pretty, and this is pretty good. I'm, I'm speaking from personal experience here, of course. And then to slowly be... Uh, for some more quickly, I'm sure. But for me, it was a slow realization like, wow, there is incredible satanic influence in all over the world. And all of these systems that I'd hitherto wanted to give the benefit of the doubt or trust were guaranteed to betray because mm. they were not built upon nor directed towards the glory of Christ. Mm. And so, so to me, I feel as if that's uh, most of the Christian or many Christians experience, if we have the courage to move forward, is to finally reject the falsehood of the satanic deception and delusion that surrounds us and accept the ultimate hope that is only found in God and his uh, prophetic plan and his kingdom and the future that he provides. And we're not to meant to become complacent within that. Yeah. So, I mean, I love the matrix analogy and our listeners love it too, because it's a quite a metaphor for the whole, you know, Luciferian agenda and the fact that nothing is as it appears and, and we're all you know being blue pilled, you know, but mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 what, what I love about it is it really, 
it, it, it's exactly what Scripture describes, what it describes believers who've placed their faith in Christ and Him alone for salvation as aliens, strangers, mm. not of this world, in the world, but not of it, that kind of thing. We really do need to understand that the moment you become born again by faith, your spiritual DNA is changed and your, your, your home is in heaven. Mm -hmm. Now, you get eternal life the moment you believe, not when you die, you get it the moment right. you believe. It just so happens that the first so many years of your eternal life are lived on this earth as missionaries and sojourners with a job to do. And mm -hmm. obviously we have, as long as we're in this physical bodies, we have to function within the realm of time, space, and matter. But that doesn't mean we have to embrace and adopt the, the ways of this world and the mindset of this world. Uh, but I hope you'll you'll help us sort of nuance that a little bit because it's it's hard to know where do you draw the line. I mean, do you move to a mountaintop and you know stop using technology and live you know offline and off the grid and oh I mean is it okay to watch a football game? My goodness, I hope so. Uh, although. Uh, <laughs> pretty much fed up with my football team uh, but uh is it okay to, to to laugh is it okay to listen to you know music i mean where do you draw the line between this worldliness and you know and godliness i guess oh and and to me it's it's that difficulty that comes before us because i think as you pointed out a person can refrain from all the things that we choose to label as worldly hopefully Hopefully, we're using a biblical standard to come across that that definition. But um, but <clears throat> as you said, we get into that legalistic, puritanical, just do these things and don't do these things. And if we do that apart from our relationship with Christ, then we've got huge problems, right? I mean, it, we've got huge issues because ultimately then our focus on ourselves it's not on the glory of God. And our mm -hmm. focus is on, you know, uh, fulfilling a checklist, probably mostly for our own personal sense of comfort or satisfaction. I'd love uh, for us to read these whole uh, this whole set of three verses for us uh, and, and kind of start off that discussion. So John writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So I think there's one word that we, we've been using a lot that I think is going to be helpful in, in discussing this, but is the word world, right? You've got that word, like many words, if not all words in scripture, are always uh, contingent upon the context in which they're used. So the word world is used many ways in scripture. Of course, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, the ungodly world system. No, mm -mm. the planet, the the physical. No, it, he loved the the humans. He loved the humans in the world in order to sacrifice, uh, send Christ to sacrifice for. Us. So we have these different uses. We have to ask what usage is John using. So um, some of those uses. There are people who've divided this more finely, but uh, the world can be talking about the physical planet, the whole universe, everything, the people of the world, the the humans in the world, as we alluded to, a specific subgroup, you know, the world of the Ephesians or the wide world of sports can be used that way. Uh, the young, uh, the young, there's a lost reference, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> really, isn't it? Boy, that brings back <laughs> memories. <laughs> but, uh, and and the, the, the one that I believe John is talking about here is the ungodly system that has set itself up against God under satanic control and in correlation with or playing upon our sinful flesh or our sin nature. Um, so I believe that's the definition of the world that John is working with. And it's so important that we recognize what 
that is and and what John is saying, because we could come up with all sorts of cockamamie, strange ideas about what we're not supposed to be loving uh, because we don't understand what John's talking about. So I feel like to me, the purpose or the importance of understanding the threefold enemy of the believer never diminishes. We mm. have to understand that there is uh, Satan, a fallen angel who has uh, set himself entirely against God with a desire to reap all glory and all worship, all praise to himself, to, to stand in the place of God. And he wants to rob God of his glory and rob God of uh, all that is due him as the loving creator and redeemer. So Satan is um, a power beyond our full appreciation or or ability to understand. He's uh, as a as a creation of God was be- is beautiful, is intelligent, is unbelievably you know unable to or able to match and overcome any human intelligence, right? And the recognition of that enemy and rather the ignorance ignorance of that enemy is a big part of his plan. I think it was a, in a, a rather not safe for, for public consumption movie called The Devil's Advocate, wherein Al Pacino playing the devil says something, you know, gives the effect that, that uh, the best trick he plays is making the world believe he's not there. And that's his goal, right? To be able to manipulate and control and, and deceive as is his desire, or as Jesus would say, he came only to steal, kill, and destroy, Right. And the world is that system that is under its under his control. And so it's it's kind of funny because I think the world has become awakening to at least this concept, right? When we hear terms that we, you know, we wouldn't uh, necessarily agree with, but we hear about things like systemic oppression or systemic racism. Uh, and, and again, we might argue about the the smallness of those ideas, but it gives us an idea that a system itself can have power, can have influence, uh, you know, almost apart from the individual personalities that comprise that system. Yeah. 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 I mean, let me interject. Now you're really singing my tune because as you know, and you and I have had some great discussions about this offline. I think most, many people are waking up now to the fact that there's a, some type of power hidden power out there that is much more involved in routine affairs of life than they previously thought. Uh, they've seen it with rigged elections. They've seen it with, you know, uh, pre-planned uh, controlled, you know, pandemics. And uh, they've seen it with uh, just, you know, the media and the, and the uh, cancel culture. Uh, so people are, you're right, they're starting to connect the dots that there's a much greater cause and effect out there, they're just not necessarily connecting the dots all the way to the top in a spiritual sense of a cosmic struggle between the Almighty God, the Creator of the universe, and you know Satan, who tried to overthrow Him in heaven and lost, and now he's trying to take over the world. So that's where my last three books come in, as you know. Is it? It's for us. It's been about a 17, 18 year journey of of going down this road, recognizing things are not always as they appear, and there is a powerful group of human co-conspirators working at Satan's behest to try to orchestrate what the Bible plainly describes as a one-world political, religious, and economic system. But you're right, I hadn't thought about the the implications of, you know, the systemic racism, systemic oppression, wokeism in general. In you know, Even though we may disagree with those conclusions, it sort of betrays the fact that people are looking for and, in a way, identifying the fact that there's a bigger enemy at, at at large out there and 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 that someone's in the shadows pulling pulling the strings right 
Mm -hmm. And it's uh, the interesting thing about it is, and again, I, I do want to say that I don't share anything in common with the woke terminology or the woke. I just, uh, I think it's an interesting point of comparison, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but <clears throat> so just, so that's a button. Oh no, we later. knew, we knew what you meant. Absolutely. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but, um, but the fact is, is that in our fallen state, and especially when you get an unsaved person who is absolutely trapped in their delusion, right. As, as Ephesians uh, two, one through three describes the unbeliever as an absolute slave to the enemy and a slave to the world system. And that's uh, in large part because we are dominated by this sinful flesh or our sin nature that for the unbeliever is their only source of living. They don't have any other go-to mode. They don't have access to the spiritual life and the uh, the, the vitality, the, the ability to see that we have as new creations in Christ with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. So they are ultimately always duped and controlled. So here you have this unholy trinity, if you like, of this the of Satan and the world and our sin nature that all work together to keep people lulled absolutely into a a, a sleep, right? The mm. world uh, Satan can filter through the world value this, believe this, like this, dislike this, right? And then uh, and, and our flesh will naturally vibe with that, appreciate it, and take those values to be our own. Truly, the Lord is not exaggerating when he compares us to sheep, right? <laughs> we are, apart from a good shepherd, going to be pulled together by a bad shepherd. Yeah. And we're going to be deceived. I, I mean, the verse that popped into my mind, and you, you may already be planning to bring this up, but when you when you uh, talked about how unbelievers don't have that, you know, that spiritual life was Ephesians 2. Uh, Paul, mm -hmm. talking to believers, he says, you he made alive who were, were dead in trespasses and sins mm -hmm. in which you once walked according to the course of this world. In other words, that's all they had. According that's to the it. prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. I mean, that's if that's all you've got, you know, like you said, you're gonna do, you know, at 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 best you end up in a hedonistic mindset of trying to find pleasure in, in whatever you can in this earth. But the difference is as a believer, see, we now have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. We are now born again, and so we have the capacity to see from a different perspective and to overcome this this threefold enemy that you're talking about. Absolutely. And I think that it is important that we come to this text and this idea from that perspective, because that will help us understand how to define kind of the boundaries of what it is to love the world. So when we look at those petty legalisms, right, there's uh, there are many things about them that we can say, uh, that there might have been a destructive tendency, right? A person who looks to bowling as their only pleasure and hope in life truly is confounded in worldliness, right? Brought mm -hmm. up in, in worldliness. It's not the bowling itself. Bowling can be a perfectly pure, but then also you could start gambling and gamble away the rent or put whatever it is, right? Your laziness and all sorts of different sinful uh, actions can be. And where the legalist goes wrong is instead of tending to the root cause, of the person's relationship with Christ and their growth and maturity in the word, you know, we try to just cut off the behavior. Let's, let's, you know, start teetotalism or, you know, get rid of the pool halls or whatever it is, forbid wearing long pants or I don't know what else legalism can do, right? They confuse the uh, result with the cause. 
And um, I think that that is really at the heart of it. And I think that it relates to John's definition too, because he talks about what it, what is this world? Well, it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And forgive me, I'll always love the, the King James rendering, the vain glory. <laughs> the vain <laughs> glory, I love it. <laughs> oh, it's great, because it is. It's just a great way to look at it. Pride sounds like something that a person can, but, you know, we can use the word pride in a in a positive sense, takes pride in one's work or whatever that is. Uh, mm -hmm. But vain glory. That's just that that hits right to the point. It mm -hmm. is vain self-glorification. But anyway, mm -hmm. starting with the lust of the flesh. So this idea of of lust is is rare to us. In fact, we will oftentimes utilize the word lust in a modern context exclusively to describe sexual lust, which is certainly a part of that. But it's not the only lust, right? In fact, uh, as Paul says in, in Galatians 5, 17, right? The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit lusts against the flesh. So there's this internal battle between our, our carnal fleshly nature and the Holy Spirit within us. And they are at absolute war, at absolute odds with one another. But when we look at those lusts of the flesh, right, we're looking at a burning desire for satisfaction within the uh, the fallen part of us, right? And that, to me, uh, gets us into a way that we can start to discern what does it mean to love the world? Well, loving the world is finding utmost and final satisfaction or mm -hmm. seeking to find, probably is more appropriate, satisfaction in the world. And of course, it's not an original connection at all, but this connects directly to the fall uh, in Genesis 3, right? What is it that Eve found so attractive, you know, found attractive? She saw that it was good for food and good to make one wise, right? So she had all of these elements were played out right in the initial uh, fall of mankind. Yeah, so, no, it's, uh, you know, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. I mean, that that's pretty all-encompassing, isn't it? I mean, it, it's, it kind of sums it, it all up. Um, and the unbeliever is only left with sheer willpower to try to, you know, overcome that. I mean, that's why unbelievers can act moral. Right. We've seen seen that. But their moral righteousness is like filthy rags to a holy God. Uh, it's, it's about the heart. That's what Jesus was trying to explain in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not what you do that matters. It's your motive. Right. You might pat yourself on the back for never committing adultery, but have you lusted? Right. Or for never murdering, but have you hated? And so um, for an unbeliever, the fact that they might be able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and just come what may do right things or what would be considered moral things does not change the condition of the heart. Um, so yeah, t talk to us about how, I mean, and I think you're going to get to this, but how, how, how does the believer um, sort of mitigate or, or defend against that proverbial shiny red apple that continues to entice us even after we get saved? Because to be clear, and I know you and I are in lockstep on this, when a person gets saved, the old man is not eradicated. He doesn't right. go away. It, we, you know, if he did, we'd all be perfect. If all we had was the new man, the new nature, the, the the spiritual life, but we still have that ugly man that that Paul describes in Romans seven and in Ephesians and Colossians. That's always there for Galatians five. The flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. The two are contrary to one another. So we have the capacity, we have the answer, but why don't we uh, avail ourselves of it more often? And 
that is right. I think the the big central issue because as uh, Christians, as believers, as born again, given this new nature, as you said, the sin nature not being eradicated, and the reality of Scripture shows us that we can still fall back into, or fall into, or choose even, and is how I would say, because fall sounds passive, and it maybe happens passively, but it's still an active choice not to fix our gaze on Christ, right? And so we have this uh, potential for the believer to live according to uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the uh, pride of life. And I think that that is um, very obvious to us as we consider where we place our affections, mm -hmm. right? So enjoying good food is by no means a sin because God is the one who made food and made food good, right? Enjoying beautiful music, right? So we can get into kind of the Philippians 4.8, whatever is good, whatever is true, what is noble, what is just, right? That we're meant to be focused on the good things. And there are good things in this life for us to love and to appreciate and to to look up to, you know, great uh, uh, great stories, uh, great novels, great books, all sorts of wonderful things that we're meant to be able to appreciate in the right relationship with our ultimate uh, goal of knowing Christ more fully. But when we find ourselves out of uh, out of line in the biggest sense is when we begin to live for satisfaction in those lusts, right? In that burning desire for pleasure or burning desire for um, a, 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 some kind of out from the reality that we live in, right? And so it's not shocking at all, especially in the world today, that drug addiction and, and various other kinds, I mean, you and I, right, living in the uh, the wasteland of the world called Colorado, we have legalized marijuana everywhere. And, and everybody said, well, that's just fine. Let's buzz out. Let's just uh, alter our mind and get away from this this horrifying feeling of sobriety, right? And um, <laughs> so we can find or seek to kind of escape in terms of various other body feelings. And it's not that dissimilar from the the pleasures of 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 you know sexual morality or whatever, but ultimately a desire to find satisfaction in in the flesh alone, right? It's escapism, right? It's, I mean that's basically what it is, escapism. You're you're trying to, you know, escape um and find that next high, that next, you know, pleasure like, mm -hmm. like we we talked about. And uh and, you know, so the question believers need to ask is, are we finding our true pleasure in Christ and yeah. in the word of God and in all of the things that the fruit of the spirit produces? And I, I mean, I love the term escapism for that because it's really what it is. And the funny thing is, is that I'm I'm a I'm the preeminent escapist. I'm excited to escape the wrath that the Lord's going to pour out on the world. And I'm excited to escape the influence and effect of sin in my life. I'm excited to escape the oppression and slavery that comes from that drug addiction, that that so-called escape. So it's interesting that they that those things escape from one set of discomfort and slavery to just another form. You just move to another cell in the prison, right? Whereas in Christ, we have the opportunity to be fully and absolutely free from that kind of thing. And there's no, none of us have been tempted beyond our ability to bear. No one's forced, right, mm -hmm. into that situation. And so as we move to, uh, you know, from the principle of our, our lust of the flesh, I think the lust of the eyes might be even a little bit more insidious. Uh, I think this is obviously your eyes are what you use to look at things, but uh, I find it fascinating that we have turned our entire little world into something that we can look at, 
right? <laughs> we can put this put this phone in front of us. And I walk around and I see people, we all am, probably am that person some of the time, see people walking around staring. They want to look at their phone. They want to look at things in their phone. You can go online and go to Amazon or something and see every product that's ever been. Of, and you can just look and lust and look and look and look. And um, of course, we needn't even mention, but we will, the uh, ubiquity of internet pornography. What is this all? It's just the lust of the eyes. Even if I'm not going to, even if that person's not going to touch it, they're going to look at it and and um, long for that constant stream of of entertainment, right? Mm. And 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 I think that's it. I mean, it's it's hilarious. It's tragic, but hilarious to me that now in a time when you can be preoccupied with the word in ways you never could before, you can go on notbyworksministries.com and hear a great new message, a great new sermon nearly every day, right? You could go up in various other wonderful ministries and get great Bible teaching all the time. But is that the bulk of what we use these things for? Likely not, obviously not, right, on the uh, the point. So it's fascinating to me that that we've come to this point in the worldly deception wherein we can be given nothing but just the ability to look at it through these little plastic windows, and that somehow obsesses our minds. And we see the, the, the effect that this has on young people and old people alike where they can't go 15 minutes without staring at their phone or checking their phone, right? It's absolutely uh, amazing that this this lust of the eyes uh, is is something that is e easily a constant distraction. So we never have to uh, sit and think, never have to interact with the world around us. We can just kind of hide in that. Um, yeah. So, so King, what do you think? King King David says this in Psalm 101. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. And the Hebrew word wicked there, if you dig in a little bit deeper, it, it literally means worthless. Mm. And that's a perfect description for the types of things you're just talking about. They're worthless. They're of no eternal value or redeeming value. They're just eating up time, feeding the flesh, and uh, and it only leads to, to great problems. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's the verse that came to my mind. Oh, it's Excellent. Well, and and to me, that's that's really the point that we want to get to is that it's not the phone. Mm -hmm. The phone is just the vehicle. That's you can right. have, I believe, as I'm holding up my little instrument of sin here, I believe you can have a, a Christian can have this and utilize it. I mean, because of the uh, the technology available, I can you know share Bible teaching with others. I can be in contact with others. I get a call you know day of and go visit someone who's in a situation in need. So there are good uses. For the technology, right? Uh, the question is, is are we going to let our sin nature run the show to the point where we're just into the same cycle of, oh, I got to binge watch. Oh, no, I got to binge watch another season. Oh, there's another season of this. And I know it doesn't glorify God at all, but, you know, I just I just have to. In fact, it's I'm going to get on my little semi-legalistic legalism warning, you know, beep, beep, beep. But <laughs> it drives me nuts how frequently I perceive that people will say, I'm busy. I can't come to this uh, you know, church service or I can't come to this, whatever it is. I'm busy. And what they mean by busy is that they're going to watch some god-awful television show for, <laughs> for four hours tonight. I'm busy. That's not busy. That's yeah. not Mm, and it's not edifying, right? Well, now now you're starting to, to go from preaching to meddling, and, and I'm too busy to talk about this subject, so let's move on. Let's move on. I think the pride of life, and this is where I was kind of excited mostly to talk with uh, this uh, about this with you because it holds so dearly to your uh, the, the work you've been doing in the previous years, and that is that the ultimate uh, example and pinnacle of the pride of life is found in the spirit of the Antichrist. Mm. 
that desire to exalt ourselves or exalt a man above God, right? And to look for humanistic solutions for everything uh, is absolutely, to me, at that the heart of our inability to find ultimate uh, peace and identity in God, and it can afflict a believer just as an unbeliever. But I would love to hear you opine, if you don't mind, about the the uh, the relationship between the pride of life and its and the Antichrist. If you, oh yeah, I mean the passage that sort of serves as the foundational passage for our topic today, which you read uh, earlier, First John two fifteen to seventeen. The very next verse is a foundational uh, verse that provides the premise for my uh, two Spirit of the Antichrist books. It says, little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist, capital A, is coming, even now many Antichrists, little a, have come. And then John expounds upon that, and he, and he brings it up again in chapter 4, making the connection to the Spirit of the Antichrist. I mean, obviously, this letter is 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 making a an argument and and building on this whole theme that he's that he introduces here in the first couple of chapters of of worldliness and the contrasts and stuff. But it sort of comes to a climax in chapter four when he says, uh, "This is the spirit of the Antichrist," verse three, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. And then he goes on to say the, the the very next verse, the great encouragement, uh, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So I think as you're talking about worldliness, the, the Antichrist, the future man of sin who will rule the world with the false prophet at his side and Satan as as his uh, you know puppet master— he is the ultimate quintessential embodiment of this worldliness. And that's what I think John means by spirit of the Antichrist. And, and that's why, you know, I chose that as the title of my books, is that to me, it all of the evil that we see in this world and, and all of the conspiracies, uh, which, you know, I always remind people, I don't believe in conspiracies except the ones that are true. And uh, <laughs> there are plenty of true ones that I talk about in the book. A conspiracy is just two or more people working together to do something evil, usually planning and plotting it in secret. And so you know, all of these conspiracies, ultimately, even though the people involved in them may not even realize it, they ultimately tie back into the devil himself and his attempt to propagate his worldly mindset that's contrary to God. Go back to your definition. Um, worldly is a person whose faith and hope rests in the world system rather than in uh, the Lord and His and His Word. So yeah, I think the Spirit of the Antichrist ultimately is a great catch-all term that John uses to describe the types of evil that we see unfurling all around us the closer we get to the Lord's return. Mm. And it's it's interesting because I think that segues very naturally into uh, the the idea of, of that most tragic thing, which is self deception. So mm. once a person has already kind of bought into that, there's the voluntary deception, you know, almost that cries out, you know, continue to deceive me. And and it's fascinating to me, especially mo mostly tragic as we see, you know, believers who are attempting, you know, as the as the little tiles fall off the wall of their illusion to try to glue them back on and find a way that they can still have friendship with the world not just the, the again the the lusts and the pleasures on the small side but the entire 
uh, perception that this is all going to be okay in the sense that the world wants it to be okay, right? That, that we're going to continue to uh, to volunteer ourselves and our minds. And I mean, as I, I, I don't want to send us down um, a rabbit hole that your listeners are absolutely familiar with, but even the, the control of language involved with the idea of making conspiracy a dirty word is absurd, mm-hmm. right? Like, who doesn't know, if they're honest, that there are people working together to achieve their ends secretly? That's yeah. just, just... It doesn't seem very profound to me, but yet... It isn't. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm speaking, I've mentioned this a few times on the air, but uh, I, it's on my mind because I'm studying and preparing for it every day when I'm not on the air. But one of my messages at the Orlando Prophecy Summit uh, in February, uh, end of February, early March is called the conspiracy theory conspiracy Satan, yeah. secret societies and the cia and as you said i'm going to explain the origin of that term it's an example of mimetic hegemony it's what they've documented in all of their journals the the elite academia world uh, as a tool a weapon weaponized language to keep people away from uh, the truth it's it's nothing more than the age-old uh logical fallacy of ad hominem you know mm-hmm. when you when you can't win the argument on the on the facts, you just call your opponent, you know, fat or ugly or mean, you yeah. know, or pick on his mother. Well, <laughs> I think, you know, that that's fine. But can we talk about the facts of the matter? So, yeah, yeah. I, I'm with you on that. But and I think it's it's important for us to recognize as we co- contemplate this idea of worldliness, it's so easy to fall for a cheap definition. And Satan's plan of deception works so well because if you can make it about playing cards and bowling and blah blah blah, then you can get people who reject godliness and say, "Well, that's if that's what it is, then you know, fine." And then come around to another side in which it could never be cards or bowling or you know what i mean so mm-hmm. it, it it becomes a reality that he's able to by that simple deception and by the uh, you know the lust of the flesh the lies that lust of the eyes and the vainglory of life able to keep people bouncing back and forth from things that are not uh, in any way going to be productive right first you know running towards legalism and then rejecting legalism but always being ultimately self-deceived and self-focused and mm-hmm. i think that that is uh, the one of the central principles of true biblical worldliness is when you've put your hope in uh, the worldly uh, a governmental system, an education system, a school system, a, a, a denomination in church or some sort of uh, co- collection of so-called Christians. I mean, look at what the Catholic Church did over the course of the Middle Ages and leading into the Reformation period, you know, the incredible uh, systemic power that they exercised to keep people away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, to keep the word of God out of people's hands. And what was that? Well, that was the world, that was the world system. And those who loved it said, no, 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 we want them to have the control. We want them to, you know, we want to do what the they what they say in this context. And so to me, loving the world and loving the world system is loving the promises of the world and the uh, delusion that the world is somehow going to pay out or provide on its promises of health, peace, safety, uh, satisfaction that it never can, right? Nope, it's a dead end. It's a, absolutely a dead end. And, you know, there's really a lot of parallels, and we've mentioned it several times in this discussion, between in the in the Christian life, legalism, the, the dichotomy between legalism and, and liberty, as well, you know, as related to this idea of worldliness and godliness, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, legalism is just a man-made attempt to try to come against the world system that misses the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and when we dealt with them, we, I know you have as well. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we've a few years ago 
uh, in the church. We had a guy that was very legalist and he was very judgmental to anyone that, you know, did certain things or said certain things. And, and our church is made up of a wide variety of people from all walks of life. Uh, we're kind of a melting pot of people's backgrounds and we just enjoy having everybody come in and we preach grace and we teach grace and we help mm -hmm. build them up in the faith. A lot of people come in that are interested in prophecy, but may not actually have ever really understood God's amazing grace. And so, of course, they're going to be a, a people who, who may, you know, have different uh, behaviors and things or, you know, wear something that you might not normally wear. And to judge them, it just, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard to me. And I've always made it clear every church I pastored, look, you know, grace abounds here. There's grace all over the place. Now, mm. if someone comes in and they're disrupting or causing a problem or causing a scene or just, of course, we're going to deal with that and so forth. But to summarily look down your nose at someone, you know, because of, you know, they smoked a cigarette, let's say, or something. <laughs> right. Oh, this person's evil. And it's just like, you know, we don't want you here, you know, if that's your attitude. Um, right. You know, uh, it's just calling sin, things sin that are maybe poor choices, but not moral issues. And that's really the, the essence of, of legalism. But that's not the answer. And that's not the answer John gives us, is it, for combating this worldly system? Because we can't make a long enough list that deals with every behavior. So it's that's got, right. <laughs> we got to have a better solution. Absolutely. Well, and I think that brings us really well to this hard statement. John, uh, John, first John, the the epistle of first John, really through third John, are all characterized by some really hard, seemingly harsh to our ear, black and white statements. But I think that the nature of this one really gives us the importance of understanding the stakes here. He says that if the person loves the world, that the love of the Father is not in him. Now, that's a remarkable statement indeed. I would not uh, suggest for a moment, in fact, I know we are very much on the same page. It doesn't mean that if a believer stops you know, or it becomes worldly or 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 becomes carnal, right? That they're that they're uh, devoid of, or that they no longer an object of God's love and salvation. Certainly, there's no way in which a person can undo the things that God did in the permanent act of of uh, making us new creatures in Christ and identifying him with His Son and all that. But there is a powerful statement that a believer, a saved person with a heavenly destiny, can live completely apart from the moment-by-moment -moment experience of the love of the Father. Mm, and that's shocking. Yeah, no, that's good. And that passage, the whole chapter three there of 1 John is so mishandled by so many people. I uh, encourage folks to go back and listen. I taught on that passage at a uh, school uh, down in Texas last year, and the week between Christmas and New Year's, most you know, just a month or so ago, while we were out of pocket, I replayed those as our podcast. So one of those weeks, that Monday through Friday, the week between Christmas and New Year's, is all about First John three. I encourage you to check that out. But mm -hmm. the bottom line is when he says. If you love the world, the love of God is not in you. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean right. you're not a believer. It just means that the love of the world and the love of God are not compatible. You can't be claiming to manifest the love of God and loving the world at the same time. They're mutually exclusive. So, you know, the the, the way I say it is that the born of God part of us never sins, never loves the world, never is mm -hmm. worldly. Mm -hmm. When we evidence that, that's the old man rearing his head and we're catering to the flesh rather than catering to the spirit galatians 5 mm. and that dichotomy right is what john is clearly bringing up here is that you the believer as a saved person can choose to love the world 
That's obviously why the warning's here. But when you do the love of the Father, the love of God, you're not experiencing in the moment. You're not having that moment, that that moment by moment fellowship. And that, uh, as as I can't remember who it was that said it, but said of all the people in the world, the carnal Christian is the most miserable. Right, because the the unbeliever goes on in his sin and you know knows nothing of the joy and life that is in Christ and the forgiveness and wholeness. He knows nothing of that, and he just goes around piddling around in self deception and self you know seeking after pleasure, whatever it is. He's after a fashion, you know, kind of doesn't know anything else, right? But and then the the believer who walks in fellowship with the Lord, the believer who's who's uh, like like you said, abiding in their position in Christ, they know the joy and pleasure and sweetness and fellowship of of, of walking with Him. They live in moment. We live. We hopefully live in moment by moment recognition of the love and the loving act of the Father by sending the Lord Jesus Christ to die and pay for our sins, to provide us with a future and a hope and a life that is ours, to provide us with the sweetness to overcome the difficulties of life by hope in his ultimate uh, curing of all wrongs and the ability to forgive because he has forgiven us. We have everything to live in that. And then you got the unbeliever, the believer, rather, the believer who lives according to their flesh and according to the love the world and they're just miserable yeah. because they've tasted something better. They yeah. were made for something better. I mean, man, just... I mean, I, I love it. I mean, that, the, that brings up another key word throughout John's writings. Uh, and that's the word abide and, mm. and to abide in Christ means to remain in close, intimate fellowship with him. So that you're experiencing the fullness of joy that, that Jesus talked about. And, 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 and so you can't be abiding in Christ in close fellowship with him and living according to the world system at the same time. They're, they're not compatible. So when a believer chooses to live according to the world, they're essentially, you know, catering to that flesh and ignoring or quenching the spiritual conviction in their life. And, uh, and they can, by the way, end up looking very much like an unbeliever. And that's why I get so passionate and defensive every time someone hastily looks at another person who's struggling with sin and says, well, they're not a believer. Well, look, they may not be. I don't know. But it's if they're not a believer, it's not because of their behavior, because there's no sin that an unbeliever can commit that a believer might not also commit if he's Absolutely. catering to the world system. And lest we forget that uh, as the Pharisees were so such a great example— to be a legalist is absolutely as much a worldly affection as is being mm. licentious, right? Mm. The, the the lusts of the flesh are equally as satisfied by a self-righteous sense of self uh, you know, uh, accomplishment yeah. rather than recognizing that ultimately it's Christ who did all Christ who does all. Uh, and so that to me is why it's so important. We can love the world system. And I, th I would argue that all these legalistic structures that we build, regardless of whether or not we reference the Bible in building them are ultimately, if they're not reliant upon and dependent upon the work and the person and work of Jesus Christ and the glory of Jesus Christ, they wind up being just as worldly as anything else. And that's why this is such an important verse to me, because yeah. uh, I would argue that the doctrines of lordship salvation are worldly. Mm. I would argue that, that the doctrines of, uh, you know, Arminian loss of salvation are worldly. They are putting our hopes in ourself and our, you know, whatever, our mind, our perception, our, our list of rules, and trying to make that the ultimate uh, source of hope and comfort and peace mm -hmm. and confidence, but our confidence is in Christ, as yeah. you so well pointed out. 
boy, I mean, I'm going to repeat that because that is very profound. But any viewpoint on salvation that suggests that you can do something that causes you to lose it is worldly because it's resting your hope in yourself and your own performance and your own system. And, and it shows that anyone who has that view does not understand grace. Grace, by definition, is free. It, it's mm. a free gift because yes. we can't earn it. We mm. can't make a list long enough to please a holy God. We've mm. simply got to receive the free gift paid for in full by the blood of Christ. So yeah, I've never really put it in that in so many words, but but you're right. To the extent that the worldly system is inherently self-absorbed, self-deceived, self-focused, any system, however spiritual and moral it may seem, that brings works into the equation and, and elevates them to a level of supremacy as the end-all be-all as to whether or not you get in, you know, that's worldly. That's exactly what the devil wants people to believe, is that they can work for their salvation. And, and, and that's exactly what God uh, motivated us to start this ministry for back in 1999, not by works of righteousness, mm -hmm. which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. So I hope folks really heard what you what you just said there. So let's, uh, you know, as we get close to the end here, let's kind of wrap up and, and sort of answer the so what question and give our listeners something who, who may be struggling. I guarantee you we all are to some extent with that tug, that tug from the world. So mm. how can we hedge against that? Well, I think John also provides that information. First uh, John, John 4, 4 says, you mm. are of God, little children, right? Now, so he's making a positional statement of everyone who's believed. You are of God, not just the good ones, not just the ones who are, you know, it's, it's because on virtue of this, of your relationship with Christ through by grace through faith, is uh, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And then just a chapter later, he says in chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, for whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. He who overcomes the world, but uh, who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So if you want a way out of worldliness, it doesn't come with it doesn't come by finding a better list of sins to avoid to put on your refrigerator. And it's certainly not going to come by analyzing and putting hope in any system that this world has, offers, or provides, but it is by a moment by moment focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by continuing to trust in that because he is the overcomer. He mm. is the one who will overcome and crush all of these systems, as John so well pointed out, that the, the things of this world are passing away already. They already only bring, you know, a lack of satisfaction and ultimately decay and fall apart into destruction. But that finally will occur when Jesus Christ comes and in his second coming, right, after the rapture of the church and and the judgment of the earth and the tribulation, he will crush the Antichrist. He will crush uh, Satan's authority with the word of his mouth. Mm. I mean, it will be gone. It will be done. It is not eternal. eternal. Therefore, it's not worthy of the Christian's attention. It's not worthy of the Christian's affection, and it's not worthy of the Christian's confidence. And so mm. the fact that we're so easily deceived into putting placing our confidence there can only be solved by finding the true source and hope that we have, which is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who gave his life on the cross so that we might be saved, that we might be restored to that place for which we were created to bring him glory and honor uh, and serve him.
Amen. I mean, first John five, four, let me say it again. That's this part of it. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So the answer to the question is faith. So faith, you know, the, the believer positionally overcomes the penalty of sin by faith. When mm. faith meets the gospel, instantly we are reborn. We've been, our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, positionally justified, righteous before a holy God, reconciled, no longer enemies, all of those things. Mm. So that's our positional faith. But in the ongoing, as long as we're topside this earth, uh, effort to overcome the power of sin, it's the same thing, faith. Mm -hmm. We're justified mm -hmm. by faith. And we're sanctified by faith. I think that's what Paul was referring to in Romans 1, 17, from faith to faith, from, from justifying faith to sanctifying faith. I, that's the way I take it anyway. Absolutely. And, and, and we're going to get to your final verse here in just a second. I'll let you, because that's that's a perfect one, the author and finisher, right, of our faith. Right. But I, I just can't emphasize enough that it comes down to faith. So when you're, if you're struggling with sin, if you're struggling with worldliness, it's not a behavior problem. It's a faith mm. problem. Who are you trusting in that moment? Do you believe the Lord and his word that tells you that touching the hot stove is going to burn you? Or are you instead placing your faith in your own worldly thoughts that say, well, you know, but it looks so yummy, you know, it's <laughs> so yummy. Yeah. Uh, who are you trusting? And so I would encourage folks uh, on this point to go to our website, go to the free section of the online store, just click on uh, store and then other, I think it even has a main banner on the store, free resources, and download the no trust obey chart that I've come back to again and again and again. We always want to start with obedience. How can I obey better? How can I look better? How can I perform better? And there's mm -hmm. countless books that have been written on how to do that. And it's all a checklist approach. But mm -hmm. I'm suggesting that it, it has to come from trust, from an attitude of faith. And how are you going to learn to trust the Lord more? Mm -hmm. By getting to know him better. You, we, we, tr we obey who we trust and we trust who we know. So if mm -hmm. you're having an obedience issue, a behavior issue, it's because you don't really know the Lord as deeply as you should. You may know him positionally. You may have placed your faith in Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for your sins. But as Paul said, you're not striving to know him in the power of his resurrection and to just mm. get to know him even better. As Jesus told Thomas, uh, or rather Philip, have you been with me all this time and I don't, and you don't know me? Mm. It's not that he wasn't a believer. He just needs to get to know the Lord better. So get to know the Lord better, then you'll trust him more. And the more you trust him, the more you'll obey him. So close us out with uh, Hebrews 12. Oh, absolutely. So Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 uh, reads, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. The author and finisher of our faith. It's, in, it's faith in Jesus that saves us, and it's faith in Jesus that will give us the power to overcome this worldly system. Uh, thankfully, even if our faith is weak or even non-existent as a believer, 2 Timothy 2.12, God is faithful and he can't deny himself. So weak faith, wavering faith, even absent faith, Jesus often rebuked the disciples who were believers for their lack of faith. Uh, that doesn't undo what Jesus did uh, for us the moment we placed our faith in him. 
But I tell you what, it does lead to a life of misery and discouragement and unpleasantness on this earth. If you want the mm -hmm. fullness of joy, remember Jesus said, I come that you may have life and that more abundantly. If you want the fullness of joy that John talks about at the beginning of this letter, uh, you know, I write these things that your joy may be full. You need to keep trusting the Lord. Keep your eyes fixed on the author and finish of our faith. Brad, thanks so much, man. What a great man. I, I feel like I'm ready to tackle the world. I'm going to leave my office and go find me a Goliath. And I'm just gonna, I'm gonna challenge him, and we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna do battle. No, it's been wonderful. Thanks so much for your word. Remember, uh, we've been talking to Dr. Brad Maston. The uh, the websites are FortCollinsBibleChurch.com. If you're in the uh, North uh, Colorado area, uh, come see him on a Sunday. Uh, he's also the executive vice president at Colorado Biblical University. That's ColoradoBiblicalUniversity.com. If you've ever thought about continuing your education and learning more about uh, the Word of God, the biblical languages, systematic theology, those types of things, uh, check that out. Uh, so, Brad, we'll have you back on again very soon. I promise this is fantastic stuff. This is a great way uh, to finish out the week and uh, embolden believers. And, uh, folks, thanks for listening. Uh, stay tuned. we got some great guests coming next week. If you're in the Denver area, come see us at Plum Creek Chapel this Sunday. I'll be continuing my uh, series through First Thessalonians and love to have you visit with us. If not, you can live stream it. Uh, from wherever you are uh, at uh, 1015 on Sundays. The service starts at 10. The live stream starts at 1015. God bless everyone. Have a great weekend.